Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I am Royfield Brown, who is sat in San Francisco, but I'm about to depart for pastures old. Today we're joined by our friend, the writer in Philly, Nathaniel Popkin, and by old-time stalwart of the show, writer and wag Mick Wright in Norwich. Say hello, gentlemen. Hey there. Hello, gentlemen. As rape allegations surface against Ronaldo... We look at the man who was once part of the 100 kegs of bus fraternity and his attempt to become one of the most powerful men in America amidst a whirlwind of allegations against him. I am a veteran and my Me Too moment was when I was serving in the United States Navy. Initially, I was angry that it happened, and I told a bunch of people who didn't care. Most of them were men, and this kind of thing just happens. Suck it up and be a good sailor. And then I stopped talking about it. I haven't talked about it in 20 years. And somehow, I went from being angry and righteous to not wanting to people know that it happened to me. I hated being a statistic. I hated that people didn't care. And I hated that it happened to a lot more people than me. It shouldn't happen. And when our government and our elected officials even consider for a nanosecond that it is appropriate, fair, or just to put someone on the Supreme Court of the United States of America that is supposed to protect and serve us is unconscionable and must not happen. Just before we kind of start the show... The pundits that are part of this will will actually know the process that I kind of like go through to put the show together. And generally, it's about two weeks to a month before any one episode that I throw out an invitation for people to be part of the show. And generally, it's just first come, first serve. It's as simple as that. And it's purely by happenstance that last week, when the Senate hearings were actually happen- happening, 
we had two female contributors to the show and I think it made for a very interesting and intimate um, show, especially when my audio went down and really they were just talking amongst themselves. That was not at all set up. As I said, it's just we do it months in advance and we have no idea what the news is going to be at any one week. And then this week, uh, whilst we still have Judge Kavanaugh and the uh, Dr. Ford allegations are very much part of the American political firmament, we have two gentlemen uh, alongside with me this week. So I thought what we'd do, instead of doing the normal let's just talk about the news, maybe uh, dial it down just a notch and maybe be a little bit more... Um, Thoughtful is the wrong word, but really to to, to talk about uh, the moment that we're in, uh, very much from from a male perspective, realizing though that maybe what a lot of men need to do at this time is really just to listen to women and their experiences. So um, that's really what we're going to try and do on today's episode, whilst looking at this moment in an American life. Um, Nathaniel. Um, we had the President of America yesterday mocking Christine Blessley Ford at a rally as some supporters, well, a lot of supporters, cheered on. But then we also have to recognise that Republican Jeff Blake called that speech appalling and Dr Ford's lawyer condemned it as a vile, vicious and soulless attack. How should we as men be reacting to the enormity and the pervasiveness of sexual violence and misconduct in a time where women are now speaking out? Well, Royfield, you already said what we should do, which is shut up and listen and align ourselves as much as we possibly can uh, with with women. Um, we're in a really interesting point, moment, time a specific spot on earth uh, in which the assumptions that many people grew up with about who was in charge, who had power, who could make decisions for who, though they had been changing and evolving over time, really are being put to a point of a hard stop. And we're faced with an actual acute change in the way we think about human life. And by that, I mean, finally figuring out and finally getting it that everyone is equal. No one's story, no one person's experience is more important than someone else's, even if that person is a powerful white man with a high position. I mean, we've made gestures toward that, thought about it, we've passed laws about it, it's been enacted in different ways all over the world over the years. I don't think we ever really believed it. Mm. Mick, for me, one of the most disappointing things about the, the, if we deal with these specifically with these allegations and then moving forward in terms of allegations where women um, confess, disclose, admit to being raped, to being sexually abused, that the reactions that a lot of people have really do play out on partisan lines. Why is that? Why do you think that is, I should say? <sighs> hmm. I see. Well, I mean, American politics has been a cesspit for a very, very long time. Um, and this kind of, I mean, uh, one, one way of looking at it is I've been listening to slow burn slates podcast, um, 
sort of relitigating the Watergate Clinton. Oh yes, the, no Clinton yeah. Lewinsky in the in the news mm-hmm. season, right? And it, it's interesting. Uh, there's a kind of mirror image of that in in the way that that went down, in the sense that a lot of radical feminist groups still uh, backed Clinton, uh, even though they might have, if he'd have been a Republican, not because they felt he was uh, legislating on various things in ways that they liked so that they were willing to take a hit on him behaving inappropriately in an office. And then on the other hand, you had the Republicans obviously trying to be the moral side at that point. Um, I'm getting a little bit cautious about this notion that we're like in these times, these like unseen, never before seen times. I think for a lot, a lot of men are starting to pay attention to this conversation as if like this conversation only just started happening. And I think you find like, I think the cases women would say this conversation has never stopped happening. And the, you know, it's just the, the mainstream is starting to pay attention to it now. Uh, the other aspect that I, I suppose I would look at is I, I think we went through a period of sort of counter revolutionary activity um, because there was, you know, in the nineties, there was this whole sort of push for a change in the way met in male behavior, late eighties, early nineties, the whole media was talking about the new, new men and a change in, you know, and a fight against sexism and a change in the way um, that heterosexual relationships particularly were playing out. And then, I mean, particularly in the UK, you had, it, it was defined, it was, it was called the new lad movement, right? It was a sort of a snap back towards this kind of hyper masculine behavior. And then if you look in America, well, you've always had that kind of that, that being tolerated in, in frat culture. And if you look at American popular culture in the late nineties, early two two thousands and onwards, you, you know, you're looking at stuff, the American pie movie, stuff like that, like a lot of frat comedies coming back, like a kind of porkies type revival. So I think, Sexual politics has been kicking back and forth over the past, say, three decades in a kind of revolutionary, counter-revolutionary cycle. This is a more extreme sort of pushback against that misogynistic undercurrent of of society, really, Mm. with any luck. Particularly given that the fact you've got the president himself was able to become president despite, you know, having numerous allegations of sexual impropriety and worse. I noticed, though, a a change in force and scale and type of dialogue and ways in which the uh, issues are being talked about. And that's why I say we're at a kind of inflection point. And obviously, you know, women have been trying to figure out how to negotiate men forever. Uh, in the political sphere in the United States, they've always been trying to find ways, particularly the most avant-garde among them, to grasp at some power when they had none politically and organize in ways that they could therefore affect what, what, what happened in their country. But, and of course, we go through many, many phases of, of feminism leading up to today. But there's something in kind that's different here that appears to me to not allow anyone to buck the truth of this, to, to, to use language that, uh, even language that would have been used a few years ago, that was just kind of implicitly embedded in that language was a sense of inequality between men and women. I, I don't think there's any tolerance for that among those women who are particularly leading the charge in, in this moment. And it really has been trickling down 
all the way through the media in the last year or so in ways I've never seen before. And I do think we're hitting a real point of change in American culture. I'm guessing that it's very similar in Britain, but I don't know for sure. Women are excelling in school. Women are outpacing their male counterparts. Women have sort of taken over the workforce and taken over the social sphere, too, in ways that they hadn't even 10 years ago. And so there's there's an actual substantial change in gender dynamics in the United States. And it's quite extraordinary to watch. And I think that part of that um, change in dynamics um, is, is an age thing. And I think that is a lot of the reason why a lot of this plays out in terms of just looking at the age of the person reacting to the allegations. So generally, if they're older, in kind of implicit that this type of misbehavior did go on and it's there for but for the grace of god go i type of thing um and then there is a blind spot as to the seriousness and to the emotional and psychological damage that that person that that woman sorry can go through because of because of this it's a case of ah you know it's just a little bit of rough and tumble thing and it happened years ago get over it and also uh, not a lack of understanding as to the reasons why many women um, have just kept these stories hidden for for so many years. You know, I think it's easier for men who are younger, who had their formative years in, let's say, men whose formative years uh, were in the 80s, 90s, noughties, etc., where we're much more comfortable uh, to have women as professional equals and have them as our bosses as opposed to let's say our grandfather's uh generations you know where women very much were still seen as an uh, adjunct to men and for me one of the interesting things is to look at the attitudes of joe biden and how he's apologizing for the way that he spoke to anita hill back in 1991 you know, that he was very dismissive back then of this fine man, Clarence Thomas, and these allegations and, just, you know, dismissed her completely. And he looks back at it and he says, you know, he was completely and utterly wrong. And he was a man, not just of his time, but a man in that time and the way that he saw the allegations. Um, Mick, what do you think? That's what I think. <laughs> Alongside, I, I, I yeah. I mean, you talk about Clarence Thomas. You know, Clarence Thomas is um, he's on the Supreme Court, isn't he? <laughs> you know, mm. and um, so too will Kavanaugh probably be. And the notion that things are vastly changed is is sort of it's it's true in the sense of people having a there being a greater voice, but also mm. I think. It's too easy to say that and not take into account the still disparities in in power. You know, if we continue at the rate we're going at now, it's still going to take years and years, decades for the representation of women in boardrooms to to be anywhere near representative of the population as a whole. For sports women to be given the respect that sports men are, like that, certainly a lot. Yeah, or close to their pay, you know, or, or, you know, Serena Williams is is a great example of someone who's, you know, 
one of the greatest athletes of all time, but still treated pretty badly in a lot of ways <laughs> in comparison to some of her male colleagues. So it's difficult. I also think, frankly, in terms of the the really ex- horrific things like sexual assault, the rates of conviction in the US and UK are still strikingly low. And you still see very, very many examples of young men, particularly in, in US um, universities coming out of that frat culture, who rape women, uh, sexually assault women and get away with it or are treated quite leniently by the um, criminal justice system. So I wouldn't be of the mindset to think the Kavanaugh's of this world are a sort of relic of an older age and there's going to be less of that in the future. I just think the other thing that you're going to see as more and more social media uh, is involved in litigating accusations around behavior is that you'll see more and more of this again a a counter-revolutionary movement of people saying oh you know these online accusations are false and these are witch hunts and all this kind of stuff that you already see happening so it's um you know it's not a wave that's sort of a continuous wave in one direction is the way i see it no 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 social change ever is it's always going in all directions at the same time and these things work themselves forward because time goes forward but as we know from every social movement in history, it's not a straight path. But I, I still come back to the sense of a hearing a different tenor to the conversation today. And Royfield, you said um, it comes down to age about how someone might perceive the particular issue of Brett Kavanaugh uh, and the accusations against him by multiple women, including Dr. Ford. And what I've been noticing in the last week or so is that it is somewhat less to do with age and, and more to do with gender. And that is that plenty of older women, women in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, were caused by Dr. Ford's testimony to reveal sexual assault and rape and abuse that they endured 50, 60 years ago. And, and so I'm, I'm beginning to think that, yes, there's a a reactionary response, counter-revolution going on. You can see there are headlines about uh, white male anger. There's accusations of Brett Kavanaugh being framed and, and all this kind of thing. But I can't help but feel that ultimately those reactions will get overwhelmed by the momentum around around women in our society in general. Like I think the four... Totally understand boardrooms is a major thing. That's why California just passed a law requiring boardrooms to include women. Most CEOs by far, by you know, probably 90, more than 90% are males, and there are fewer female CEOs now than there were a few years ago. That's kind of a mirror of the Trump era. But Trump himself represents a kind of last gasp at a certain kind of maleness that comes forward with the the assumption and the expectation and the entitlement to power and domination. And I think we're watching like it play out with men freaking out. Uh, I don't, I think Boris Johnson is freaking out too. Like these are men who, who represent the kind of man who doesn't think the rules apply to him. Doesn't like rules anyway. Doesn't think that men, real men should have to face rules 
And here we are facing an era in which rules are necessary because there is 8 billion people on earth. And the only way to manage that is through rules. I think the antipathy towards the EU has to do with the fact that it's so rule-based and and men in their manliness can't handle focusing on it and facing those rules. And they don't think that those rules should apply to them. That's certainly the case with Kavanaugh. Hmm. I'm just going just gonna to end up on one point which really struck me watching the, the testimony um, last week. Um, obviously, we've had in the last week, former classmates of Kavanaugh have kind of stepped forward to say that he was a frequent drunk. So cast massive doubt on parts of his testimony that, yeah, he just liked to be a, you know, just putting these allegations just to one side. For me, the most shocking thing was that this man actually doesn't have the temperament to be a chief justice, does he? Uh, somebody who could be that belligerent and, it almost feels like a trite thing to say, but he should be as sober as a judge. And I, and I mean that in the in the widest sense of the word, not that he should be sober all the time, but is somebody's going to be deliberating on some of the most contentious issues to do with American life, which will have well, yeah. massive, massive um, ramifications on America for decades, if not centuries to come, and he can lose it the way that he did. Imagine, like, just hype, imagine a hypothetical world where where it was it was undisputed. Like, there were there were no allegations, right? There weren't allegations, but a man. But you saw the way he behaved when subjected to questioning. That would be the testimony alone would be disqualifying. <laughs> exactly because he's not he's he's not. Um, but then there's so much that's disqualifying again about him. There were so many other things prior to. Um, to the allegations coming forward you know he's not a fit appointment but i don't know we could we could have a whole episode about the the, the highly dysfunctional way that court is is you know nominations to that court happen because merrick garland should have been able to at least have a nomination vote and that didn't happen mm-hmm. yeah so you know i think it's it's really a striking and fascinating thing that Brett Kavanaugh, who was the staff attorney on the the star investigation into the Clintons, and who pushed the narrative, um, the conspiracy theory narrative around Foster's death, he pushed the most damning sexual details about Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky into the record, tried to litigate that, tried to embarrass the president as humanly possible. That moment in American history was also an inflection point because it invited in what we have now lived with since then, which is the unlimited and constant flow of poison from the extreme right wing, which does not worry about truth and actually mostly peddles an innuendo and falsehood and hatred. That poison really began in the moment of the Clinton impeachment process which Mr. Kavanaugh was so intimately involved. And here we are on what I would imagine is the kind of bookend to that moment, because the the severe disturbance of the Trump presidency, preceded as it was by the political game of holding up Merrick Garland's nomination, which is a historical event, a, polit- a historical event in American political history of significance. Um, 
it's so interesting to see Mr. Kavanaugh bookending uh, this period in American life. And of course, American life was the opposite of innocence before the Ken Starr investigation, um, or we should say the Starr-Kavanaugh investigation over the Clintons. Um, and it will not be innocent after the Trump presidency is finally blown up. But it really marks a, a, a point of history that has been so damaging, so damaging in all ways. And, it, and it's really because of Kavanaugh's um, experience in this, as a prosecutor in the Starr uh, investigation that makes him so unfit to be a Supreme Court justice. He has been a political ideologue and operative for his whole career. He has been an extreme partisan warrior for his whole career. And that is exactly not the kind of sober person that one would want on the Supreme Court. Hmm. Just as a utterly last thing, just a, a comment that in the UK, we have a Supreme Court and we've only had, it's only been called the Supreme Court for about 12, 13 years. It was the law lords historically. And like all judicial appointments in the UK, it's totally non-political. You don't, you don't vote for them just like you, like you can vote for the Alameda County judge in the East Bay or the San Francisco judge. You know, it, it, these are appointments which are made by the judiciary and then ratified by the Lord Chancellor. If you ask a hundred Britons who is on the Supreme Court in the UK, they couldn't tell you. Do they do good work? I presume so. I couldn't tell you what cases they've uh, looked at in the last year. It's just something which I'm not saying is without problem, but it's definitely something which there isn't the political rancor in the UK. And also just another thing to compare and contrast, because that's what this show ultimately is supposed to be about, comparing and contrasting, that these are not 10 years for life in the UK, that you're obliged to retire at 70 or, mm. or at least 75, uh, depending on when you were appointed. People are not just sat there for decades uh, pontificating and fossilizing and, and have views from literally from another century. Uh, but anyway, trust <laughs> me, I don't know enough about the Supreme Court in the UK to say that it's a paragon of virtue and it is the model that the US sh should follow at all. But just look, being a student of uh, the American Constitution and the way of the separation of the various branches of government that you understood the reason why the founding fathers said we're going to have this body with people who have longer tenure which are not appointed so they are not part of the political process but that has massively uh, uh, since since Bork in the 80s that has completely and utterly died so to speak and these are very much our political appointees and uh and, yeah, I, I would I would just caution to say that the Supreme Court has been political at, at least uh, since the 19th century, a avidly political. I mean, when you think about issues such as unionization and free enterprise, uh, the Supreme Court was quite ideologically oriented one way or the other, depending. That, that, that is true, Nathaniel. And yes, we had FDR's court packing scheme in the late 30s. So yes, you, you are right. But what you didn't have is this grandstanding in the Senate where one party would be wholly for a judge and another party would be wholly against. That is something which is very new into the uh, American political system. 
let's uh, move on from the new world to the old, the Tory party conference. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The UK's Conservative Party conference has wrapped up in the city of Birmingham. Despite speeches of unity, the Prime Minister's position is under further scrutiny from her own party. Just moments before Theresa May was due to give her closing speech, she was dealt yet another blow with a letter of no confidence. That hasn't apparently dampened her spirits, though. Let's go live now to RT's Anastasia Churgana in London. Um, uh, thanks for joining us, Anastasia. What was the mood like during uh, May's speech, the, the party conference in general? Well, Dan, it's certainly a curious political times here in the UK as we speak. And uh, this annual Conservative Party conference has wrapped up to quite a bit of drama, despite British Prime Minister Theresa May putting up a show of keeping up appearances, including with that uh, quirky dance to ABBA's Dancing Queen, uh, despite a speech that was really seen as make or break for her. Because, uh, of course, uh, much of this speech was dedicated to Theresa May trying to show that she has things under control, especially when it comes to Brexit, having uh, essentially now standing at a point of a potential no-deal Brexit, having sown uh, lots of division inside the UK. And of course, May was trying to show that uh, she can still fix things. However, before her speech, she was dealt quite a shock blow when uh, a letter of no confidence had been uh, sent by a Tory MP uh, going public with him essentially calling for her to go. Uh, Mick, with the Tory party conference wrapping up in Brum, has Theresa May done just about enough to hold the party and the country together? Um, no. Well, it depends. It, no, no. But it depends on how long you're talking. I mean, y- yes, for the next like two weeks until the next negotiation round the negotiations with um, with uh, Europe and then it's going to uh, explode again. I mean... The fact that she sort of opened her speech today, um, as we're recording, by entering to um, 
Dancing Queen by ABBA. It's a sort of drakeification of the of being prime minister. She just sort of thought, oh, well, I'll just make a meme of myself of my own choosing. Given that last year she became a meme through the most calamitous party conference speech in decades. To you know, steal a phrase from American politics, she's a lame duck, and. It's just a matter of time before it explodes again. Mm, a bit of a disco duck. I must admit, <laughs> when, when I saw when I saw the video of her coming on stage, I actually thought someone had just dubbed that music on top. Yeah, I thought yeah, it was cassette seriously. Or I thought, well, is this someone just obviously taking the piss? I did not realise, and I have to give her a certain amount of props that she came out to the no I did, because she looks so ridiculous. She looks so ridiculous. I, I wouldn't give her. I don't. I wouldn't give her any props, right? Because I, I, I think I'm kind of tired of the, the office of prime minister being so casually used by these people, right? We've got her. Before that, we had Call Me Dave. Before that, we had Gordon Brown pretending you like the Arctic Monkeys. There's just a <laughs> sense where this office has just been debased. You know, before that, it was it was Blair and open net, open net shirts and lounging about and playing his guitar. It's like, that to a certain extent, mm. it would be quite good to have a prime minister that went, do you know what? Actually, like, I am a political wonk and my personality is probably slightly lacking and you probably wouldn't want to have a pint with me, but I'm competent. She's incompetent. So whatever music she comes on to... Mm. You know, Wayne County and the electric chairs. I don't really care because she's just, she's an incompetent. And it really annoys me that what's happened with our political media today is that they're all going, oh, very good speech, you know, tanks on Labour's lawn. Actually, it's been a terrible party conference with most of the big speeches barely attended. The real attendance is being at the events for Jacob Rees Mogg and, and, and Boris. And, Boris Johnson. And and whatever people say about Corbyn, people expected the Labour Party conference to be an absolute disaster. And it mm. wasn't. It was a relatively unified conference with Corbyn coming out, doing quite a good speech, feeling like, actually, here's a man who's got some passion. And, you know, she was a dead fish again. Do you think, though? But everyone's focused on the bloody well, album well, moment. I'm not just focused on that. No, no, you're not. You're not. But I brought it up. But I mean, the political media is, you know, their assessment of it. It, it, it by it is the it is the politics of spectacle, and she's been. It, it's distracting people from the actual content of that All speech, right. which was hope like policy like solutions like. One thing she did say, which I thought was significant, and you have seen in this Tory party conference, is the uh, the will now uh, to build more houses. And what Theresa May did say, you know, whilst defending her kind of Brexit strategy, is that, you know, she was standing up for Britain and that from a decade on from the financial crash, you know, there's going to be better days ahead, signaling a kind of rise in public spending. She didn't just talk about Brexit, 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 and Brexit meaning Brexit. Was she right to move away talk from just Brexit, Mick? Yeah, I mean, in the same way that someone that someone without insurance who's just crashed their car into a lamppost might try and distract a passing, um, you know, patrol car from looking at it. But um, I don't know. You know, you've got her... Talking about this house building thing, right? They won't do it, though. This is a recurring promise. Uh, we've got a, a political class that loves to keep promising this. It, you, 
remember as well that she, prior to the speech, has been, you know, in interviews, has been saying things like, well, you know, the cops in police numbers um, have no relation, have no direct correlation to uh, rising crime. You know, and promising a hundred and twenty million pound festival of Britain, it, it, I can't be clearer that this was a disastrous conference from a disastrous prime minister from a zombie party with a zombie government. Uh, you know, it's I, we're at the end of the Italian job where the boss is hanging off the end of the cliff. You know, and she's not even trying to reach the goal. She's just sort of sat there rocking back and forward, humming. So, who's Michael Caine? Is it Boris Johnson or Theresa May saying he thinks he's got a plan? Uh, in that sense, it's Boris, and it, and he he doesn't have a plan. He has no plan. Right. Oh God, I don't know. It angers me. The whole thing winds me right up. Uh, the Tory the Tory conference has been dominated, obviously, by Brexit, as Mick said, by all the fringe meetings outside of the main hall, with the former Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson launching a renewed attack against the Chequers plan. Open political dissent, Nathaniel, is kind of more common, at least was more common, in the American kind of body politic. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why is the Republican Party now so quiet under Trump? They're getting everything they want. Um, even I, I just read that Jeff Flake has voted, uh, with Trump 83% of the time. And he has been probably the single most consistent outspoken critic of Trump from within the party. Um, maybe Kasich, the, uh, the governor of Ohio, but, uh, he isn't, doesn't have quite the same platform. The, the situation is so similar, you know, like this is a zombie party that has no ideas, that is wrapped up in ideology that intellectually makes no sense whatsoever, that says it cares about things like budget deficits, but we all know that it doesn't care about things like budget deficits, so long as the rich are paying as and powerful corporations are paying as little in taxes as they can get away with, so long as the extraction industries can go on and also avoid as many regulations as they possibly can. Everyone is is content. There there are no ideas. There's no capacity, and I think Mick, this is what you were talking about in terms of the Tories. There's no capacity for solving problems. There isn't a single outstanding problem in the United States that the Republican Party has a single articulate, well thought through solution to. They don't believe that the government should be involved unless it's to help them make more money or to get richer. And so it's, it's totally vacuous. It's totally vacuous. And they're willing to allow this man to deface American institutions, uh, American role in the world, even democratic institutions such as the EU or such as aspects of, of the American um, political system are really fragile. These things are really fragile and they are willing to test them, to push them to to the extreme, um, simply because they got lower taxes for the wealthy, and, and that really is what it what it boils down to. There are no other ideas out there, aside from get rid of as many regulations as possible. Nathaniel, let me understand from a historical uh, perspective, because as I kind of frame frame the question, that historically there would be much better, tighter party discipline in UK politics than in US historically. Mm-hmm. 
um, because we have this parliamentary system and fundamentally there's only one center of power in the UK. I know it's slightly changed now in the last 20 years with with Scotland having its mm-hmm. own assembly in Wales, etc. But historically, MPs towed the line, whereas in the States, you have all these diffuse centers of power. Each state has its own legislators, etc., etc. You have senators being more independent than congressmen that you would have um, Republican senators and uh, Democratic senators being in, if not open revolt, but being very critical of their party's president. That was incredibly common. When did that start to break down, at least on the Republican side, historically? That's a good question, historically. Um, Another factor in all of this, I think that's an important difference and then I'll try to answer the question, is that our parties aren't really parties. You know, you can say you're a member of the Democratic Party, but it doesn't mean anything. You can register to vote as a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent or something else, I suppose. But it, it doesn't really mean something unless you live in a state where you can only vote in the primary if you're registered um, with that party. But there's no actual active party life. That's part of the kind of looser, more decentralized, less institutionalized political system that we have. I can't really recall when partisan identity asserted itself so profoundly as it has now with Republicans in Congress and a clearly amoral, deeply corrupt severely incompetent president of this of their same party there have been eras in which party loyalty has been the most important aspect of life in congress i think to a certain degree there was you know there was loyalty to someone like johnson who was pretty corrupt or nixon who was very corrupt i don't recall a, a moment in which the ideologies had boiled down so much. I think looking at it from purely from the other side of the Atlantic, that for me, it's the 1980s and it's the rise and the triumph of Reagan and the Reaganomic right, where the right then seems to coalesce around um, Christianity being mm-hmm. something that they own as opposed to the left you know christianity belonged to everybody in america left or right beforehand but the right seems to say that you know fundamentalist christians all those televangelists are always kind of right wing that under reagan there seems to be this marriage of um deregulation reclaiming the flag after the uh, Nixon and, and uh, Nixon Watergate and Vietnam years to say that the culture wars of the 60s went too far. And then the cherry on top of the cake is then evangelical Christianity. That seems to me then to focus the right in, in a very different way than it ever has been before, where you could have where really in the the 1920s let's say the difference between a democrat and a republican was whether you believed in tariffs that was it really there was, there was no there was no real you could be a social uh, you could be a liberal republican or a liberal democrat all the way up until really the 1960s but in the 1980s it kind of changes and then you have much more 
party discipline as we would now kind of understand it in the 2018 sense, definitely from, from the right, where where their person is in power, they are lock, stock and barrel behind him. And if anything, are trying to pull him more rightwards. So definitely under uh, the, the first Bush. And then you have, you know, speakers of the house in the nineties and stuff that are yeah. forever going kind of rightwards. That to me is kind oh. of where you see dissent on, on the right in terms of whoever is either the president or the, or their speaker of the house has been much less, but actually it's to pull them forever rightwards. No, no, you're, you're totally right. I mean, you hit it on the nose. In fact, in 1980, uh, one of the, um, the Koch brothers ran for Congress and lost badly as a libertarian. And the lesson that they took from that was not to run again as a libertarian, but to put their massive fortune behind pushing the Republican Party further and further to the right. And in fact, now the Koch brothers spend more than the Republican Party itself on its elections. So you nailed it. I mean, it was Reagan because Reagan was able to encapsulate a kind of ideology and the Republicans have had much better and easier time of having discipline around a few basic ideas that many of them used to be democratic ideas and they stole them and they kept them and they protected them and they firmly identified with them, such as being religious, traditional values, support for the military, which when I was a kid in the 70s, all of my older uncles and whatnot had been um, had been World War One and World War II veterans. They're all New Deal Democrats, and they had enormous patriotic pride at what uh, American government institutions could do when they put their minds around a problem. That was the kind of you know New Deal ethos, but that was that was taken, as you say, the, the military was taken and it became a right-wing cause. So, no, you're right. And I think it, it hits high gear with Lee Atwater and then with Newt Gingrich, as I said before, during the, the Starr investigation yeah. of the Clintons is when it really, it really figured out how to turn that into a poison. And then, of course, Fox News comes along three years later and opens up a, a new way in which the Republican Party message can just pound, pound, pound. You know, they're only in power because of gerrymandering and because of the the inequalities within the American democratic system that give far more weight to to rural places than than urban places. Hmm. It's um, something which we've touched on 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 many in mid-Atlantic and again, um, not to to beat up America because it's a country which I think has got many things going for it. But uh, our electoral boundary commission—it's uh, not to say that every decision that they come to, if you're looking at gerrymandering, just as one issue, one difference between the two countries, not every decision that they come to is universally um, lauded. But they're seen as above politics. You know, it's not an elective position again. And they're, the reasons why they draw the boundaries the way they do are well thought out and explained. But anyway, um, but Mick, to come back onto our good old Tory party and dissent, 
as Theresa May prepared to deliver her speech today, or may, maybe tomorrow by the time people actually get this, uh, sorry, yesterday, <laughs> as uh, people get this podcast, and Conservative MP James uh, Dundridge um, announced that he submitted a letter to the Backbench 1922 Committee calling for a leadership contest. Uh, so again, that theme of dissent, will this call fall on deaf ears or are we looking at as you kind of hinted at before, maybe two weeks worth of feverish politicking in the Tory party. Well, those letters get submitted and the number builds up and we know that there are others in there. Uh, yeah, look, I, I just think that the catalyst for more shady Urquhart style business in the Tory party will be the next set of negotiations with the EU because the hard Brexit faction, especially the European Research Group under Jacob Rees-Mogg, are going to, I think the technical term is, lose their shit if the uh, Prime Minister makes any further concessions to the to Europe. And I think she can't avoid making further concessions in order to push towards a deal. Today, I don't know that I'm answering your questions well, but that would be my answer, yes. It's not that the furious politicking is going to happen over the next two weeks. It's that we'll have two weeks of sort of relative stability. But once those negotiations happen, that's when various plotters will make their moves. I'm still not sure whether Boris will will be able to actually get it over the line because you just never know if he or his supporters have the kind of message discipline and overall campaign discipline to achieve that. But certainly... Looking at the speeches at the conference, there are a number of people who are clearly making veiled bids to be considered in you the guys, next race. Um, think that the Russian role is not getting enough attention paid to it. I mean, and I think Mick, you're right. Like as soon as the Brexit negotiations go to the next phase, and she has to con- make concessions because she's going to have to, um, that will be the point at which there could be further opposition to her. Um, and, but that's just the kind of situation which the Putin folks seem to like to exploit in various ways. I don't know how uh, vulnerable political life in Britain is to, to it. Well, definitely, it definitely is vulnerable. I mean, there's, there's plenty of evidence that there was at least some interference in the, in the Brexit mm-hmm. uh, vote, various Russian ties to figures within the vote leave campaign. I think another fact, yes, I think the Russians may do that. They, they're also, you know, shown a ponchot in the past 10, 15 years for killing people in, on British soil and us not doing very much about it. But the other thing I think potentially can flip things around is, is simply that the Labour Party decides to push the button and switch to mm-hmm. backing a second referendum properly. I could see that happening. I mean, it is so febrile, this situation. It's very difficult to predict. The only prediction I keep making is that we either end up with Prime Minister Boris Johnson or Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn. I I think both are quite possible within the next six months, um, which is probably not good for any of us. Just to end up this segment, one thing Theresa May did talk about was the level of personal abuse of politicians. And she actually spoke up a little for Labour's Diane Abbott and whilst calling for an end to the bitterness and the bile that is poisoning our politics. I'm going to start with you, Mick, and I'm going to throw the same question over to you, Nathaniel. 
Can we ever go back to an age of relative political decorum? No, never. Because we live in the age of the internet. Politicians do what works. So while they talk of decorum, when it comes to elections, they do precisely the opposite. And I think it is very much crocodile tears about Diane Abbott from the Tory party who ran an incredibly personal, brutal and unpleasant campaign aimed towards Diane Abbott during the last election. So really, they've just decided that she that it makes them look sort of morally better to say that. But I don't think they believe it. I really don't. And I'm getting quite tired of the notion that the Tory party isn't is, is somehow less racist than the Labour Party. The Tory party is very, very racist. Yeah, I think the word febrile is the word the word of the day, Mick, you, you, you nailed it. Um, until some of these things that we're all dealing with resolve, no, the, the, the degree of ang- first of all, the degree of hypocrisy and pure outright lying on the part of both the Tories and the Republicans in, in this situation. You know, you have right-wing people in the United States saying, well, you know, we're part of the Republican Party that was uh, opposed to slavery. And the Democrats were, were the, the pro-slavery party, which is theoretically true and actually true in history, but today's parties have no connection to um, what they were. You know, the, the Republicans will say anything and they will say anything that is disingenuous first and foremost. Maybe all politicians do, but the Democrats have a harder time being disingenuous. On that, though, going back to the, the idea of this being such a febrile time, this stuff has to get worked out. And it's either, I mean, how do these things get worked out? Sometimes it, sometimes there's, there, there's peaceful transfer of power. Sometimes there's violence. Sometimes there's periods of extreme upheaval. And I think that we're approaching that. There is so much to be worked out. And overhanging all of it is the thing that no one can talk about, no one can resolve, no one can focus on for five minutes that is going to affect everyone, whether Tory or Labour, Democratic or Republican, a former colony or whatever you are, and that is global warming. It is a dysfunctioning subject that, that no one can face, and yet we all know that it is bearing down on us. So, Okay, now it's time for our takeaways of the last seven days. So as we put the Tory party conference to bed, and we ponder over George Kavanaugh and what the Me Too movement says to us as men, we kind of slightly move on to matters which are a little bit more uplifting. So Mick, I'm going to start with you over in sunny Norwich. I know it always shines there. Um, or is that Philadelphia? Um, what's been your takeaway of the last seven days, sir? Um, well... I, it was today I watched the first episode of um, a Showtime season called Kidding, and I don't know where it's um, found a home in the UK, but it's on Showtime in the US, uh, and it features Jim Carrey playing a kind of Mr. Rogers-esque uh, children's entertainer um, who uh, one of his twin sons has, has died in an accident, and he's trying to cope with that while also being this, you know, Mr. Rogers comedy figure um as jim carrey's first big role in a good while and it just reminded me of of the quality uh, of him as an actor he he's astounding and, and has been in so many things over the years so i'm just recommending that really you can watch the first episode for free on um showtime's youtube so like 
it's worth watching um, that episode even uh, but yeah uh, it's good I enjoyed it and uh, yeah just ve- there's a great cast around him but he's he's particularly striking uh, recommendation indeed I'll give it a watch and just whilst we're quickly on TV shows Insecure um, on HBO if anybody hasn't seen that absolutely brilliant story of young uh, black woman in LA and I suppose if you're going to call it akin to anything it's a bit like sex in the city stroke girls in that it's kind of female led but anyway that actually isn't my takeaway of the week so I best shut up uh, Nathaniel over to you get me out of this hole I've just dug uh, myself though it's always sunny in Philadelphia I have been able to get out of town for the last few days and um, and get some work done and uh, while in the place where I get that work done which is not in the city it's a very intense place I was, I found myself in a kayak on a lake and I looked up uh, and there soaring above me from one side to the other was the distinct profile of a bald eagle. And um, damn, if seeing an eagle isn't like a little heart fluttering, uh, it is such an, an epic beast and there's a reason why the eagle is the kind of emblem of many many different countries, um, including the United States and Mexico. Uh, it, it is such a great uh, bird, uh, probably a horrifying predator as well, but we won't talk about that. But we will talk about what it reminded me of, which was the fact that we humans can solve problems. The bald eagle, of course, was nearly eviscerated, and uh, we, we humans came together and treated the problem and allowed that creature to live again. And now I, I see eagles somewhat frequently when I'm up here in the woods. And that is an awfully amazing thing to see. Mm. I'm, I'm always really struck when I'm here in the Bay Area, just how close I am to nature compared to when I'm in the UK, and really by that I mean just big wild animals, whether, you know, soaring eagles or bears or just like, you know, large you know, wild dogs, etc. That um, in the UK, uh, generally our wild animals aren't of the big variety, you know, and I can be in San Francisco and literally just uh, go uh, across the Golden Gate Bridge and all of a sudden, uh, you know, you can see all manner of like wild animals and majestic creatures. You know, Royfield, that was, um, you know, back in the days of the New World and Americans trying, mm. the new Americans trying to say, hey, you know, we're just as powerful and important as you are over there in England. Um, look at our animals. <laughs> They're huge. We have mammoths. Uh, and and it was <laughs> that very idea that the size of the animals that were extant in uh, North America was a point of extreme pride. Of course, we did all we could to eliminate them. But for a moment, it was true. Mm-hmm. My takeaways is a very kind of subtle but meaningful difference between the UK and the US. So I've decided to adopt the Cleveland Browns as my... Um, I mean, stop your giggling. 
stop your giggling, sir, as my American football team of choice. And um, there's a massive amount of inverted snobbery in that, that actually I do like the underdog. I do like the idea that it's a blue-collar town, blue-collar team, etc. And they just have to be called the Browns, and my surname is Brown. So you put all those things together, and I, I found my team. And um, I've always been struck being over here um, that Americans, much more than Brits, wear T-shirts, wear apparel, which has a location on it. And it can be a football team, a basketball team, a college team, or just the name of the town. So many people in San Francisco walk around with uh, San Francisco Giants caps on, uh, which actually means San Francisco. Um, or T-shirts just that just say San Francisco, much more than somebody wandering around in the UK with a, a T-shirt on that just says Norwich. You know, you might have a Norwich uh, FC, Norwich City football shirt, might. But you'll see men and women wear apparel which has the location on. And it is a very big difference between, uh, sorry, a very subtle difference. When I say it's a massive difference, it's a very subtle difference between the US and the UK in that regard. That there is a sense of locality, but wearing the name of that locality on your chest, which is um, you know, not so marked in the UK. So I was wearing my Cleveland Browns shirt because the Cleveland Browns played the Oakland Raiders. So I could actually go and see my beloved Browns in the flesh, so to speak. And we won our first game in two years, the week before. And so I had a shirt which said Baker, it said Mayfield on the back. And uh, that's it. That's the quarterback. And a guy, Riley, turned to me in a bar and said, I see Amazon's been delivering today. And I burst out laughing and spat into my pint because he was absolutely right. You know, there's no way more than 10 days beforehand I would have, or anyone, anybody in the United States would have ordered such a thing. You know, a T-shirt, um, an American football shirt, which said, Mayfield on the back because he just exploded in in the last uh, last 10 days and I had got it that day so it was absolutely right but I had to take this shirt off on Sunday after going to the match and having so many people just go really really when I'm where I'm, where I'm wearing this thing for, for this loser team and the amount of let's say humorous abuse that I took walking to the stadium, in the stadium and then walking back. But after wearing it for five hours, I had to take it off afterwards because so many people just stopped me in the street and just said sorry because uh, Oakland had beaten uh, my beloved Browns by three points in overtime. You know, I had a rather nice woman just hug me in a bar randomly out of nowhere and you know and, and just shook me and then bought me a drink and this just kind of went on and on and on so I, I just throw that as my takeaway of the week in that there is a subtle difference between the US and the UK in terms of wearing apparel which has a name on it let alone a sport sporting apparel and then just the power uh, which is a recurrent theme of mine of sporting camaraderie where you can have random people just uh talk to you in bars hug you assail you in the street and uh, strike up conversations with you so um if you're looking for a go I tell you what we call that over here having standards 
We have standards. That's why we don't walk around with shirts like that on all the time. It's bad enough that there is a phenomenon in the mm. UK known as the full kit wanker, which is a grown adult men wearing full football kits to football games. That's bad enough, but it's good. Just wear your sporting shirt to go to the game or on game day and no other time. It's important I, I, I will not have that. Tra- you know what, Mick? I, I, I kind of hear you. And as I said, I had to take it off because too many people were talking You're to so me. Bastard. Too many. But anyway, um, let, let's just wrap <laughs> this up by saying, uh, Mick Wright, what you, how can people find you on social media and what you've been up to recently? Hey, uh, yeah, go to Broken, Bo- Broken Bottle Boy on Twitter and go to my pinned tweet when my my novel is up for pre-order and it's on 51% and I want it to get to 100%. And if you've listened to me on this show and you've even enjoyed one time I ranted, you could pre-order the book. Hey, yes, smashing. Uh, I've, I've, uh, I pre-ordered it. I supported you. I'm not talking uh, to you. Okay. I, I know you weren't talking to me. I'm just, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad just you did. Backing you up, mate. I'm just saying that I've bought. So I've also <laughs> read your book as well, Nathaniel, which is all about Philadelphia. Why don't you tell us about your book, where people get that? and uh, the reasons why you wrote that book and what you're up to at the moment, and then finish it off by saying where people can find you on social media. Sure. Uh, The last book I uh, came out of mine, well, the last book that came out of mine was a co-edited book called Who Will Speak for America, uh, co-edited with Stephanie Feldman, a novelist. And, That's um, not the book I was. I know. Of, well, well <laughs> Who Will Speak for the Amer- for America is it? Uh, a collection of work of forty-three uh, American writers uh, and artists, um, poets, uh, novelists, polemicists, um, you name it, uh, even cartoonists uh, from across the country. Some of the finest uh, American writers of the day uh, responding to. Uh, a query that Barbara Jordan made in the 1976 Democratic National Convention before things got really bad um, when she said uh, after Watergate in Vietnam who now will speak for America Uh, so that book is uh, available everywhere Uh, a novel of mine called Everything is Borrowed which explores the layers um, of one man's life through the palimpsests of the city of Philadelphia and um, and it perhaps explores the idea that one's past, as poor old Brett Kavanaugh is discovering uh, right now, uh, is never truly in the past. Uh, I can be easily found at Nathaniel Popkin uh, on the uh, on Twitter. And, uh, of course, all of my books are available wherever books are sold. And I don't write because I can't, but what I do do is I talk. So if you want to hear me talk some more, you can listen to me with the podcaster David Crowther do a a little show which is called The Things That Made England. Or if you are in love with all things twee and British, or shall I say English, you can listen to me talk talk about the archers, sorry, on my podcast, Dumpty Dum, of which... And the reason why I'm flying back to the UK is because I'm doing a live show at Birmingham Town Hall this Sunday in front of a packed audience. We'll have a live recording uh, of Dum Dum with Susan Carter. The character Susan Carter is played by Charlotte Martin and with Kerry Davis, a scriptwriter from The Archers. And follow me on social media if you want to see Tumbleweed. Find me on uh, Twitter where I'm just quite simply at Royfield. Um, that's been us. We are Mid Atlantic Show. You can follow us on Twitter where similarly, similarly, there's not an awful lot going on, but we do do tweet when the shows go out. 
quite simply on Twitter. We are Mid Atlantic Show, and eventually I'll get round to sorting out what, what the hell we do on Facebook. But that's been us. Don't forget, we are the left of centre. Do the right thing because doing the right thing is the right thing to do. Type of show. You can email me at royfield at gmail.com with your thoughts and your feelings. But I tell you what, if you do nothing, just do this one thing. Write us a review on a podcatcher of your choice, preferably Apple Podcasts, but anyone will do. Write us a review, give us five stars, and let's keep doing the right thing. Toodaloo. Goodbye. See you all again soon. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.